Lord willing, I'll have that for you next Wednesday. Uh, but uh, I'm going to, uh, just because of the way things went last week, and if you tuned in uh, and watched the video last week, I'll apologize to you up front. <laughs> I, the first four or five minutes, I had a COVID moment and had a hard time getting my brain on things. So for clarity's sake, we're going to go back and kind of hit the high points and, and get a running start into tonight so that uh, just uh, everybody understands. But we're dealing with the seven churches, and we've said it, as we've said before, uh, these were literal churches that were in existence during this time period. And uh, we understand from chapter number one that um, the Bible refers to the, uh, the stars that Jesus, uh, that John saw being uh, the, uh, the seven angels, that they are, uh, the stars were representative of the seven angels of the churches. And then that the angels, we understand, are uh, the, the uh, pastors or the, the leaders of those churches. And, uh, and we know that, because, that they're not angelic angels there in that sense because of the fact that God corrects them. He uses John to instruct them. Um, things that God would not uh, characteristically do with uh, angelic beings. And so there were a number of reasons why we gave for that. We talked a little bit about uh, the pre-tribulational rapture, and we pretty well dealt with that in Scripture, how that that's uh, very clearly shown. And then we dealt with uh, the church at Ephesus. Uh, each church has the same format. God will uh, give some indication who is speaking, who's, who's narrating the letter, uh, to them, and he uses that to establish some attribute or characteristic of himself that applies to the corrective uh, measures that he's going to be telling the church about. And uh, so uh, then he deals with um, uh, the complaints or criticisms that he has, the faults that that church has. He also gives compliments in the areas that they're doing well, and he gives a charge. He tells them how they can correct those things or to keep on doing the things they were doing well. And then finally, he gives uh, just some general uh, information about those that overcome. And uh, there's some great promises found in these uh, chapters, in these uh, churches, letters to the churches. Uh, we found that the phrase, he that overcometh, in these letters is not in reference to people that are by works trying to do anything, but those that have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have trusted Him as their Savior. And so the promises that are given are not for everyone, and they're not even for those that just per, just persevere. Um, they are for those that are saved, and that is the first criteria, the first requisite of these promises that are given to each of these churches. In the book of Ephesus, we find that God uh, considers himself, and again, I will have all of this in printed form for you next week, so uh, I'm going to move somewhat swiftly through them, but hopefully in, at a pace that people can grasp it. Um, but the church at Ephesus um, is, God represents himself as he that holdeth the seven stars in his hand, that walketh in the midst of the golden candlesticks. And by this, he is uh, showing the fact that he is the head of the church. He's the Lord of the church, the, the, and the Bible teaches that. Paul says that he is the head the, the body of the body of Christ, that he is uh, the head of the church. And so by speaking of this and giving these uh, descriptions of himself, he's referencing the fact that he has that authority uh, over them to correct them and to do that. His complaints were that they left their first love, and because of that, they were not doing their first works. Uh, so those were his complaints about them. He did uh, compliment them for their labor, 
for their patience, the fact that they tried false apostles and found them to not be apostles, that they had borne, that word borne meaning to, uh, to be steadfast during time of tribulation. They had they'd borne the weight of uh, persecution. Uh, their patience, that they had not fainted, and that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And that's where I got really crazy last week. Uh, for some reason, I couldn't say Antioch and Ephesus in the right order to save my life. But anyway, uh, the Nicolaitans were followers of a man by the name of Nikolai. We read that in the book of Acts. Uh, who was elected as one of the first set of deacons uh, that they chose in the book of Acts. He was a proselyte, the Bible says, of Antioch. Uh, the, there are some early church writings of folks that were contemporaries of his that spoke quite a bit about the fact that he was a convert from the pagan uh, worship that was going on at the time and had converted to Judaism first and then finally to Christianity and uh, the problem that he had and what was characteristic about him, and we find a little more uh, Bible description of that. You don't have to rely on historical accounts of this alone, but the Bible also gives an account of it as we deal with the church at Pergamos, that his philosophy or his doctrine that he was teaching was to mix and to mingle the things of the world, the worldliness, the paganism of the day, with Christianity. And uh, God talks about this. And when, whenever we take the things that the world is, is doing and we try to bring that into the church uh, for the sake of maybe appealing to more people, uh, that's, that's what the Nicolaitans were doing. And, uh, in fact, you'll find out when we get to the church of Thyatira, uh, there is a strong influence of the Nicolaitans there. And uh, one of the problems that they, or one of the things that was said about them is they were a church that had great growth. So because they were bringing the world in, they had big crowds, and kind of similar to what we see in a lot of churches today. They bring in the, the worldly uh, philosophies, the worldly dress, the worldly music, uh, the worldly conduct, the worldly speech. I mean, just everything about it. And, um, and uh, when God speaks about it, he talks about the fact that these deeds of the Nicolaitans, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, he says, which thing I hate. This wasn't something that was a light matter to God. This was something that was a very, very serious matter. The purity of the church was to be, to be uh, revered and something to be respected and something to be uh, defended against. And so he, he told them, he said, I, I commend you for that. You, you don't tolerate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which was a plus for the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> and um, he did give them a command to remember from whence they were fallen, uh, to repent, and to return to their first works. And so that was his uh, command. And then, uh, just by way of, um, uh, of uh, just some things that he gives at the end, he says uh, in the, uh, see if I get it here, verse number 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh. Will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God? And so, uh, again, he that overcometh, dealing with uh, those that are saved. And uh, so he talks about the fact that those that are saved are going to be able to have the tree of life, or eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And, uh, again, these are not things to be partaken of by unsaved people. Then we get to the church at Smyrna, and uh, the church at Smyrna uh, is God refers to himself as the first and the last, he which was dead and is alive. And so he portrays himself as the risen one, the Son of God, 
um, the fact that there is uh, deity given here or shown here that he was um, the first and the last. He's he is God in 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 uh, uh, even though he's God the Son, he is God. He is all of God as well uh, as part of the Trinity, and that he is the risen one. There are no complaints to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was going through a great time of persecution and. Uh, we mentioned this a little bit last week and when we were here, that persecution oftentimes brings purity in the church. Uh, it tends to be that po- folks that aren't real serious about the things of the Lord, people that tend to be wishy-washy and kind of try to have a foot in the world and a foot in the church at the same time, when persecution comes, it's just not worth it to them. They just, they just seem to fall by the wayside. And usually the most strong, steadfast, ardent folks will be the ones that are left. And that was the case in the church at Smyrna. They had so much persecution going on that it brought a purifying effect to the church and the fact that these were folks that did not have anything that God looked at and said, you need to correct this. He complimented them. He knew of their tribulation. He knew of their poverty. He knew of the blasphemy that was taking place as people would uh, speak ill of them and speak badly of them. He knew of their persecution that was going on. And he made this statement. He said, fear none of those things. And you would think he's referring to the things they were already going through at the time, but he makes this statement, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. In other words, there's going to come some more, folks. There's going to come some more. And in fact, he says to them, be faithful unto death. And then he gives them a promise. He says, if you're faithful unto death, he says, I will give you a crown of life, a reward for this. Uh, these would be some of the first martyrs uh, for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the proofs that this is a divine book, that the truth of it is something that is so vital to us, is that these men, many of these folks, had had a first-hand account. They had seen with their own eyes the Lord Jesus Christ. They had experienced the ministry. They had seen the death and the burial and the resurrection. They had seen Him in His risen form. And they gave eyewitness testimony for that, and as a result, they were persecuted, and they were threatened with death. And in the threat of death, they stayed with their story and said, I'm not going to recant it because it's true. I've never seen a man that was convinced of a lie and knew that he was lying about something stand by it to the point of death. They had to be absolutely, thoroughly convinced that what they had seen was true for them to be able to go through the martyrdom that they went through. And so this church suffers greatly. It makes a reference to ten days here. If you look down in verse number uh, 8, the Bible says in verse number 10, uh, I'm sorry, verse number, down to verse number 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall be, have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And uh, I've read several things about the ten days, uh, what that means. The best I can tell on that particular one is, again, like when we were studying the 70 weeks, them being years instead of weeks, uh, it seems to be that this is in reference to the ten years uh, under Diocletian that they were going to have uh, just great persecution. And Diocletian's uh, persecution of that church in particular and that, that group of Christians uh, lasted for 10 years. And so I believe that that is in reference to that. If somebody disagrees with me on I'm not going to uh, argue the point with them. Uh, the truth is the Bible doesn't give us clearly what that is in reference to, but it is interesting that 
the persecution of Diocletian uh, lasted for ten years, and then there is a reference to that here in verse 10. Um, and then, of course, he says, He that hath an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh, again, dealing with uh, the fact that these are folks that are saved on their way to heaven, shall not be hurt. Notice this phrase, of the second death. There are only two places in Scripture this phrase is used, the second death. One of them is here in this verse. And it tells us that those that, are, that overcome uh, are not going to be heard of the second death. The second usage of it is found in uh, Revelation chapter 20. Hold your place here and let's turn over and look at that for a moment. Revelation chapter number 20 and uh, verse number 14. Revelation chapter 20. Right, let's back up to verse 11 so we get the context. We talked a little bit about that in class last night how important context is. So let's look at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books According to their works. Now, understand this. There are two judgments that we'll find, and we'll study them in depth as we go through the book of Revelation. One of them is the judgment seat of Christ, and the other one is the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. It is not to judge whether we get into heaven or not. Aren't we glad of that? It is to judge us on our works what rewards we will get or what rewards we will suffer loss on because of how we have lived our lives. But we are sealed and secure, and I'm thankful that the judgment seat of Christ is not to, to decide whether I am condemned or not. That judgment was made on Calvary, and I am innocent as I stand before God at that judgment seat of Christ. I do believe that there are going to be many of us that will stand there in shame and realize that I should have lived differently. I should have done more for the Lord. I should have been better and will suffer loss of rewards in heaven as a result of that. That does not mean we go and suffer. We still get the great glories of heaven. We still get the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We still get our tears wiped away. We still get to live in eternity with Him in absolute wonderment. And uh, we just will suffer loss of rewards. The second judgment that is spoken of in, in Revelation is the great white throne judgment. This judgment is only for those that are lost. It's only for those that have never trusted Christ as their Savior. And this is a judgment a, a, uh, that they go through that judges their condemnation. And uh, we find here that this is what is being spoken of. So it's talking here of the great white throne in verse number 11. He sees the dead, small and great, verse number 12, stand before God. And the Bible says the books are opened and another book, which is the book of life. And notice what it says here in verse number uh, 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the what? Second death. And what was he telling those that overcome to the church of Smyrna? He was saying, you'll not be hurt with the second death. This, this passage, in tandem with Revelation chapter 2 in the church at Smyrna, 
negates the teaching of purgatory. The idea that even people that are religious or follow Christ have to go and suffer for a while. Because we find here that the only ones that are going to suffer that second death and be cast into that place of torment is going to be those that have not trusted Christ as their Savior. It is not going to be those that have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that for us uh, now in the New Testament day, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And there is no in-between time. Uh, And so, again, we find very clearly in Scripture uh, the teaching here. And I think that this verse is given for us for uh, a wonderful reason, and that is for us to know these things, to be able to understand these things. And so we find that in the church of Smyrna. Moving on to the church at Pergamos, and uh, we spent some of our time there last week in chapter verse number 12. <clears throat> God describes himself as he which has a, two-edged, a sharp two-edged sword with two edges. And so he presents himself, he shows himself as a, a judge of his people. He's going to judge with the sword of his mouth. The problems that he had with the church at uh, Pergamos was that they tolerated the doctrine of Balaam, and they tolerated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Both of them are along the same lines, and he uses the doctrine of Balaam to try to give indication to uh, what the Nicolaitans were following after. They were doing very similar to the doctrine of Balaam. And uh, we, we spent just a little bit of time on that last week, and just to give you a quick refresher on that. Balaam, uh, in the Old Testament, was... Uh, was uh, met, he, had, he was asked to meet with King Balak, who was the enemy of the Israelites and was trying to conquer them. And Balak offered Balaam uh, gifts and money and, and fame and fortune, position, everything. He tried to, to bribe him to curse the nation of Israel. And Balaam, really, from everything I can tell from Scripture, he was on his way to kind of do that. He was pretty certain he was going to go do this. And uh, we read in the Bible that uh, his donkey stood in the path in, in front of him, wouldn't let him get by, and he starts hitting, the, hitting him. And then the donkey, first one I know of in history, probably the last one I know of in history that ever did, spoke to him, <laughs> which is interesting. And then his eyes were opened, and he saw the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn and realized that if his donkey hadn't spoke up, uh, God probably would have taken Balaam's life. But uh, God told Balaam, said, you can't do this. You, you, you do this, and, and that's not going to be a good thing. And uh, so Balaam, you know, he's greedy. He wants the, the uh, means of Balak, the king. And so he goes back to Balak, and he says, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to curse Israel for you. But he said, here's what I can do. I can tell you how you can get God to, to judge Israel. He said, if you'll get your daughters and your sons to infiltrate with their daughters and sons. By the way, if that's not a reason to be careful who your kids run around with and their friends, uh, that, that certainly shows in Scripture that there is certainly uh, a, a standard that needs to be held there when it comes to your kids. Uh, but he said, if you let the daughters and son you know, come into the daughters and sons of the Israelites and begin to... Uh, it started off just getting them to like each other and intermarry, but it ended up being fornication going on and every other thing. And uh, also let them bring their idols in, and they brought idols in. And so there were two issues that Balaam tried to get the, the king, uh, Balak, to do, and that was to 
commit fornication with the children of Israel and to bring in idolatry. You're going to find that God deals with those two issues um, in, in this area. And so uh, that, was the, that was the doctrine of Balaam, in case you weren't familiar with that. And again, that's all in Old Testament. You can read the story for yourself. Um, it's there. You don't have to scratch your head and wonder what that is. It's very, very plain. And uh, so he talks about the fact that they tolerated the doctrine of Balaam, they to- tolerated the Nicolaitans, and they had a lot of the world in the church. Again, this was a very wicked city. In fact, this was, the Bible says, the place where Satan's seat was and where Satan dwelleth. Um, and so God tells them, he says, Repent, or else I'll come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, he's going to uh, give some, some judgment here. And isn't it interesting that the Bible is referred to as a two-edged sword? It is spoken of as the Word of God. And the reference here, I believe, with the sword of his mouth means they're going to be judged based on God's Word. And uh, that he'll fight against them, he'll be against them. And so he says that in verse number 16. Repent or else I come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. For what? What is God going to destroy them for? Uh, Why is he going to be fighting against it? Could you imagine being a church that God was fighting against? Could you imagine being that kind of a church? I I hope our church is one that God comes and tries to bless and and strengthen and encourage. Uh, Could you imagine being a church that had done something so wrong as to have God fight against them and bring judgment on them? What was the horrible thing that they did? They brought the world into the church. You say, that's all? (laughs) That's how seriously God takes that. That's how seriously God looks at it. Oh, Brother Greg, that shouldn't be that big a deal. It, It is. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to God. And again, this isn't something I'm coming up with. I mean, it's you can read it. It's right there. It's it's in Scripture. I'm not making up God's mind for Him. I'm not trying to tell you something that's not in Scripture. Uh, it's just what the Bible says. Verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Again, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, uh, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, save he that receiveth it. Uh, a couple things in verse 17, and I didn't spend a lot of time articulating this last week or delving into this, but there's a few issues here that he speaks about for those that overcome it, those that are saved. And the first one is, he says that he'll give uh, to eat of the hidden manna. And this hidden manna was in reference to um, the manna that was inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And um, the... The Ark of the Covenant as a whole, had it was, the Ark was considered to be the, the mercy seat when it was in the Holy of Holies. And inside of it, it had a sampling of the manna that the children of Israel had been given by God. And it never rotted, although all the other manna rotted after the first day, unless it was a weekend, then it lasted two days, because they weren't allowed to collect and gather on the Sabbath. And uh, then it had Aaron's uh, rod that budded. Uh, a, a broken branch, a, a branch off of the life-giving trunk of the tree that budded, and that was inside of there. And then there were also the tables uh, of the law the, that God had written with His finger and, uh, and etched in there. 
And so we find here the ark is, is a picture of Christ, of course. Uh, it contains the bread of life in it. It contains uh, that which was dead being made alive again. It gives us the law and the standard of a holy God. And all of these things picture Christ. And so when we look at that, we find that this reference here to the hidden manna, which was the manna inside the ark, uh, is that those that, are, uh, that overcometh will be given to eat of that manna. And uh, if you remember when Christ was uh, giving to his disciples at the Last Supper, he gave them the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And we get to partake of and be a part of this body of Christ as we are made his children. And uh, then it says here, uh, And will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, save he that uh, receiveth it. And so we find um, a reference to this white stone. There was a, a practice back in the day, and the best I can tell, this is what this is in reference to. There was a practice back in that time period uh, when a man was judged and found to be guilty, or judged in any sense. If he was found to be guilty, they would hand him a black stone. And if he was found to be innocent, they would hand him a white stone. And it was the symbolism. When they would come to the accused, they would hand that to them. That was their answer, and that was their verdict. There were semblances of that thing taking place even down through history up until the 1800s. Uh, there were countries that practiced something very similar to that as well. In studying a lot of this, the best I can read on, on that and understand it is that this was in reference to the fact of the him that overcometh, we're going, to be, we're going to be stated as innocent. We're not going to be stated as guilty of our sins. And uh, then it talks about a new name, which no man knoweth. We're going to study that a little bit further, so I'm not going to say a lot about that right now. Right here it says a name, uh, which is an indefinite article. Uh, but when we get to Revelation chapter 5, we're going to see that it uses a definite article and a particular name. And uh, we'll, we'll, I, well, I think we'll see the tie there, and we'll deal with that when we get to Revelation chapter 5, uh, because that's going to take a little more time than just a little bit of time we're dealing here. I do want to mention this. Uh, I, had a, uh, I wanted to share this last week, and I didn't have the reference handy. But turn with me to Daniel chapter number 10. Daniel chapter number 10. <clears throat> because one other thing about the church at Pergamos that I found interesting is that it was known as um, where Satan's seat was uh, and, and where Satan dwelleth. Both of those phrases were made about the city of Pergamos. That's interesting to me um, because Satan is not omnipresent. Uh, Satan can only be one place at one time. By the way, so many times we say, boy, Satan's really after me today. Most of the time it's not Satan. Uh, in fact, I would dare say a lot of the time it's probably not Satan. It probably is one of his minions that's trying to tempt you and give you a difficult time and have things happen there. and Sometimes it's our flesh nature that we just choose willingly to disobey God, and you know we, we get into our own trouble and our own mess. Um, but you know the, the, the saying that Satan made me do it or the devil made me do it is not really all that accurate. In fact, um, there was uh, there were some men in the New Testament that uh, had seen the apostles casting out devils, and uh, they came to them, and uh, they, they, they decided they wanted to, to do the same thing. They found someone that had a devil in them, and uh, 
they, they, they commanded that devil to leave in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the devil spoke back to him and said, you know, I know Paul, I know Christ, but who are you? <laughs> like, we don't even know who you are. What, what authority do you have, you know? And we need to understand that Satan is not omnipresent. He's not the one involved in every one of our lives. In fact, it could be that someone could go through their entire life and possibly never have Satan directly work with you. But certainly his influence does. And certainly those that follow after him uh, are doing his bidding. And um, we, we do wrestle against flesh and blood. I'm not going to give a full study on angelology. At some point we'll do a study on that doctrine uh, from Scripture. I'm going to give you just a really quick high-level overview. I think one of the best illustrations of that is found in Daniel chapter 10. So let's take a look at that, and we'll probably end there this week and pick up Thyatira next week. All right? Let's look in Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so what is the world empire in power at this time? We had the, we had, initially we had the Babylonian Empire. It was conquered by the Medes and Persians. So we have now the Persian Empire is what it became known as. After the Persian Empire, anybody remember what the third great world empire was? Okay, the Grecian Empire. Okay, the Greeks. And finally the Romans. Okay, so good. You guys know your history. We're good. So we have the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. The Romans, all of them were conquered except for Rome. Rome was not conquered. It, it fell apart and crumbled of its own demise, which, by the way, is a very... Uh, the United States of America is, is quickly following that same pattern uh, of uh, self-destruction. But uh, So we're in, the, we're in the time period now. Daniel has, was captured under the Babylonian Empire, under Nebuchadnezzar, if you'll remember. He's now serving under the Persian Empire. So look what it says here in verse number 1. In the third year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. And in those days I, Daniel, was mourning, notice this phrase, three full weeks. How many days is that? Can we do the math now? Pastor, we're coming to church. We're not supposed to do history and math. How much? 21 days, okay? All right. So I was in mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread. Neither came flesh or wine in my mouth. Neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekel, then I lifted up mine eyes... And looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision. But a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. 
And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood. What's the next word here? Trembling. By the way, these folks that say, I've seen a vision of Christ, I've seen a vision of an angel, don't you believe them? Brother Harold and I think we were talking about that a little bit last night, that the closer we draw to the holiness of God, the more comely and undone we seem to be. Our sin, as the psalmist said, my sin is ever before me. The Apostle Paul, as he drew closer to Christ throughout his ministry, gets to the end of his ministry and said, I'm not just a sinner, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm the worst one I know. Why? Because he had drawn closer to the holiness of God. We, we see Daniel standing here and seeing the holy uh, vision here and is in a, a place of trembling, in a place of his comeliness being turned into him into corruption. And this, this, this man who touched him on the shoulder in verse number 10 says in verse number 12, Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Well, when was the first day? It was 21 days ago, wasn't it? 21 days ago, God heard him and sent an angel to answer him. Notice what it says, verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the king of kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips, then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as much as for me, for as much for as for me, straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me, one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. And said, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened. And said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee, and now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. I don't want to... I don't want to confuse or get people. I I don't want to say anything here that would be contrary to Scripture. But there is there is a hierarchy of angels. There is there is there are some that are obviously more powerful than others. Uh, we know that when it came time for uh, Michael to contend with Satan for the body of Moses that the Bible says he didn't even he, he wouldn't even do that. Uh, we find here that obviously there was some devilish power that had control over the leadership of the Persian Empire. 
and that when he came to deliver this message to Daniel, who was serving in the court of the king, uh, he was withstood 21 days by this devilish power, the strength of this devilish power. And he had to call on Michael to come and help him. Michael being one of the chief princes the Bible refers to him here as. And with Michael's aid and Michael's help, he was able to come on through to Daniel and to deliver the message. When the message was delivered, he says, Now i got to go back and I'm going to fight with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece is going to come on the scene. There's no doubt that Satan and the devils that follow after him have power. They're nothing to trifle with. They're not. I've heard people say, "Well, I'll just, you know, I'll give Satan a bloody lip." The Bible tells me I, I can, I can withstand him, but the Bible tells me I'm supposed to flee him. We've got to be careful of this thing. Uh, I think of when Moses stood before Pharaoh. I have no doubt that the astrologers were able to duplicate the miracle of Moses throwing his rod on the ground. I have no doubt of that. The difference was Moses' Moses's serpent ate theirs. And it showed that even though there was some power that they had, they were no match for the power of God. And by the way, Satan is not Christ's evil opposite. He's a created being. There is no equal opposite to God. He is infinite. Satan is finite. He does have some power. He has more than you and I have. But he is no match for God. And he knows that. Satan knows this book probably better than any single one of us here. He doesn't like it, but he knows it. He knows what the end of it says. He knows what's going to happen. And he knows that God is going to win. But he's going to do everything he can to destroy as many lives as he can, while he can. So I have no doubt that there was some power during the time of the Egyptian Empire. When Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, there were astrologers and soothsayers around him. And they were the ones that he normally called when he had a dream that he needed interpreted. When they could not interpret the dream, what did he do? Anybody remember? He said, I'm going to cut you and your households up, and I'm going to turn them into a dung heap, and we're going to destroy your whole family because you can't, you can't interpret the dream for me. You know what that tells me? That tells me that they got that position in the first place by interpreting correctly some dreams that he had had. But they weren't dreams from God. They were dreams that Satan had given, and then his uh, minions his devils that controlled these powerful men, let's call them princes, if we will, of that land, uh, were able to come and say, hey, <laughs> I just met with the boss, and he told me what the dream is. I'll tell the king what it is. And they were able to retain their position as astrologers and soothsayers. But one day, God came down, and he put a dream in the heart and the mind of Nebuchadnezzar that was unlike anything Nebuchadnezzar had ever known. I think Satan did his best to cause Nebuchadnezzar to forget it because Nebuchadnezzar didn't even remember what it was. And Daniel comes on the scene. And it's funny because all of the astrologers and soothsayers came and said, there's not a man alive that can do this. And somebody spoke up and said, oh, there's a man of God. Let's call on him. And they called Daniel in. He was able to give the answer to it. So there, I believe that in leadership, and the Bible teaches this, that uh, kings 
and princes and rulers of kingdoms of this world are oftentimes controlled. There's a war or battle going on for their minds. I believe it's part of why we see so much of the issues we do in the politics, even of our own country, why there's such a diametrically opposed and, and almost a hatred towards one another that is there. And uh, so we find here that under the Prince of Persia, uh, this, this devilish influence over the ruler of Persia at the time is shortly after defeated. We don't have a time frame here. He doesn't say, but he does say, I go to fight with him. And when I do, the prince of Grecia is going to come in. And so that kingdom ended and another kingdom arose. And uh, I say all that to say this, that when it spoke of Pergamos being the seat of Satan, of it being the city where Satan dwelleth, I believe when we look at it, we have to say that was probably the center of, of wickedness and evil and idolatry. Because it was the place physically on earth that Satan had chosen to, to take residence, to set up, to, to branch out from there. And you say, where is it today? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of, lot of possibilities of where it is today. Suffice to say, we do battle against spiritual warfare. And uh, the Bible tells us that we, we do that by taking the whole armor of God. Uh, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel peace. Uh, we need to study this book. We need to have strong faith. We need to trust Christ. Uh, we need to be able to handle this book well and know it well. Why? Because there's a war going on. And whether we want to think we're in the seat of Satan or not, or where he dwelleth, there is certainly a battle that takes place. And it's not some far-off distant land. It happens in your life and it happens in my life. And again, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize, and I tried to give you in about 15 minutes what's probably a three-week study in the doctrine of angelology. But just very brief, I think uh, Daniel 10 is, is a very easy passage to turn to and at least have some level of understanding of what takes place sometimes in the spiritual realm, I think more, far more often than we, than we think. And uh, this was the case for Pergamos. And the world was creeping in, the influence uh, of, of God's people, the bombardment. Uh, we were talking, I was talking with somebody just this week about this. Uh, the world bombards us all the time. Uh, and Lot, who was considered a just man, a just man, the Bible says that he vexed his righteous soul by seeing and hearing the wickedness of Sodom from day to day. I was talking to a fellow just this week. He uh, goes to a, a Methodist church, a good friend of mine, and we were talking about some things of the Lord. And uh, he, uh, he made this statement. He said, you know, we were talking about Lot and his wife. Lot's wife turned back. And we know the story turned into a pillar of salt. Have you ever thought this thought? Now, I'd never heard anybody quite put it this way. And I heard him say this, and I thought, boy, what a, what a truth. God was judging Sodom for its wickedness. It wasn't like this was a godly wife who understood, oh, that's not pleasing to God. I better get that out of my life. This was somebody who knew 
very well that God was judging the sinfulness of that city. And she turns back and wants it anyway. And before we're too critical of her, how many times in our life do we come across something that we read in Scripture and know that this is something that God hates? And we look at it and we want it anyway. There's a battle going on. A battle for our minds. A battle for our hearts. We better read this book. We better saturate ourselves with it. We better have some strong faith. We better say, Lord, I I need to make sure that I'm saved and trusting You as my Savior so the Holy Spirit lives inside of me and helps me through these battles. So, so important. And we'll end there. Uh, We'll pick up with the church of Thyatira next week. Those of you that heard some of this last week, I apologize having to go back through it again. I just felt with the nature of how the week turned out last week, it was helpful to go back through these again and kind of bring everybody back up to speed where we're at. Now we can get started moving forward again next uh, Wednesday night. Okay? Hopefully we'll be done with the seven churches by the time Brother Eddie comes. And uh, (laughs) that's four weeks, so hopefully we're through with them. Okay, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. Lord, so many things that this wonderful book tells us and teaches us that sometimes we don't think on, we don't think about. We're sometimes ignorant of it. Uh, We just don't know it. And, Lord, things that are very urgent for us to know, things that are very important that we know and understand. In order for us to be pleasing to you, in order for us to